0: Please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, I feel like each fortnight we get a chance to sit down with someone that is kind of extraordinary in their own way. (laughs) And today, I feel like that would be an understatement. We have someone with us who is doing things that I mean, you just have to stand back and admire from a distance. Um, and sometimes, like now, you get up close and personal and you can actually ask some questions of your own. So, Kate, I, I, I might do the intro for this one. Um, we're chatting to, to Peter Singer. Um, and if I just do a very short intro to Peter, it won't do him justice. But um, just some of the notes that we've got here is uh, Peter is one of the world's leading moral philosophers. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University He's the author and co-founder of a book and a website that you can go and and visit now, The Life You Can Save. It's an organization that inspires and empowers people to take action in the fight against extreme poverty. Peter, on behalf of Kate and I, it's our pleasure to have you with
1: us. Thank you very much, Owen, for that generous introduction, and uh, I'm happy to be with you and with Kate.
0: Maybe, Peter, what we can do to start off with is maybe just... (sighs) I guess this is—we're going to try and fit this into a very concise answer, but maybe you can just give us a bit of your backstory and how you came to be involved in such an important topic.
1: Oh well, well uh, the, I don't know where the story <laughs> begins exactly, but I, I suppose it really begins with the decision to go into philosophy. Uh, I originally studied to do law, but and the arts was kind of a little side issue to make it. The law degree a little bit more interesting, but I ended up then getting a scholarship to go to Oxford and study philosophy there. And I was always interested in the areas of philosophy that made a difference to, to your life. So clearly, that was going to be ethics and perhaps political philosophy. Mm-hmm. And uh, even when I was, uh, well, when I was just a student or, or still at Oxford, um, I started thinking about the obligations of people who, you know, like myself, were living a, a comfortable material life in an affluent country, uh, as in in regard to people who were in extreme poverty and extreme need. And it was uh, the crisis in what's now Bangladesh um, that arose in, in 1971 that made me write my first piece about this, um, because there were 9 million refugees from uh, what was then mm-hmm. East Pakistan who flooded into Into India and India needed help to feed them and so I was asking myself you know well what ought I to be doing these here are nine million people who uh you know may not get fed enough may not have sanitation and and what are my obligations to help them and that's that article got me going on on the topic and I've well it's not the only topic I've been writing about of course Mm. but it's one of the main themes of my work since then
0: Mm, um I've I've heard you be described as one of the most influential living philosophers, um, which is quite the title um, and hence my I guess that the my humbling that you are joining with us joining us here today. Um, obviously, you spent a lot of time early in your career working um, on improving, I guess the ethics in in how we treat animals, and now I guess, that would be an entirely different topic for another day, but um, I would encourage all of our listeners, and we'll provide links in the show notes too, to go and look at Peter's uh, bio on the Life You Can Save Australia. We'll, we'll put a link in the in the show notes to that. But today we're talking more about altruism and effective altruism and how people can give back. So, Kate, I know you've got a quite a few uh, questions that you want to put to Peter, and I'm, I'm excited to hear his answers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty exciting to interview someone who has a Wikipedia page. Um, (laughs) So, Peter, to start the conversation off, I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about what can we do as individuals to financially support others, both in Australia and internationally.
1: Well, uh, as individuals, obviously, one thing we can do is to donate to the most effective organisations that are helping people in need and i believe the most effective organizations are those that are helping people in low-income countries rather than in australia because we're we're very fortunate in australia that uh both that we're an affluent country but also that we have a government that does provide for basic needs for people who otherwise are struggling and i'm not in any way belittling the state of poverty that exists in australia and i think we should do more about it but um you know, people in Australia can take such a lot of things for granted that people in other countries can't. Um, things like clean water, for instance, uh, being able to for their children to go to school, um, but uh, also health care. Um, you don't have to have money to, to get health, decent health care in Australia. And uh, getting enough to eat, basics like that. Whereas in many parts of the world, there are people in extreme poverty as defined by the World Bank that's living, roughly speaking, on less than $2 a day um, who can't take those things for granted. And so, obviously, um, money goes further if you're using it to help people in much greater need for whom uh, $2 a day is their total income. So $1,000 is more than they're going to earn in a year, uh, whereas $1,000 for an Australian, you know, an Australian in poverty might be useful, but it's it's not going to be life changing. Uh, so I think we need to look for those organisations, and also among those organisations, because there are quite a few of them, we need to look for the ones that have been independently assessed and verified as giving really great value for every dollar that they receive. Uh, so I think you know that's that's the best way. Obviously there are, or well, that's the way that most people can make use of. Clearly, there are other things you can do. You can uh, use your time and skills rather than money in order to support those organisations if you have time and skills. But but for most people going about their daily lives, um, giving, making significant donations, giving a reasonable proportion of your income to helping people in uh, extreme poverty, I think is the best thing you can do. Mm-hmm.
0: Peter, I've got two questions on this. Um, I guess the first one is related to the second. How much does it take to save a life? I've, it, I don't know if it's crude for me to ask that question, but I've heard it um, asked before. And that's, that's kind of my first question. And then the second one is, you know, how can we, as people that are sitting at home listening to this, people that earn a salary, how can we think about how much we should give on that basis?
1: Right. Well, I think the question, wh- how much does it cost to save a life, is, is not at all you know, too crude a question. I think those are the sorts of questions we ought to be asking when we're comparing mm. different organisations. Um, can this organise, uh, well, different organisations that are trying to save lives. Of course, there are some organisations that might be doing things like restoring sight in people who mm. have cataracts or preventing people going blind. That's a different comparison, but let's just focus on organisations that are doing things like saving lives. Uh, One example of this would be the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets in malaria prone regions. And it can be pretty clearly shown that when families and particularly children sleep under bed nets, uh, they are less likely to die from malaria, less likely to get malaria, obviously, and some of those who get malaria then die. So you can... uh, ask yourself you know, how much does a bed net cost and the answer to that is very little two dollars or something um, but that's not the cost of saving the life because you have to distribute the bed net you have to educate the families on how to use it plus obviously you know not every bed net is going to save a life you have to distribute a lot of bed nets to have confidence that statistically you will have saved a life so um, an organization called give well uh, has assessed this and Come up with a figure of around three thousand US dollars to save a life by distributing bed nets, um, which you know is a long way from two dollars. But on the other hand, it's also a long way under what affluent countries, including Australia, spend to save a life of somebody who uh, is seriously ill and perhaps has to go into intensive care, where you you might easily spend a thousand dollars or more per day that a person is in intensive care so so it is very cheap by by uh affluent world standards to to save a life for that
2: mm. and i thought and you then uh,
1: asked the second question so how much should people give um in the, in the book the life you can save which uh anybody can download for free from the or.org.au or .org.au um Uh, I I have a table at the back, kind of appendix, which is a bit like tax tables in that I'm suggesting a percentage that you give that increases as your income increases, because as your income increases, obviously, you can afford to give a higher percentage of that income. So um, I start out with just 1% for people uh, earning around uh, $40,000, and I go up to giving away a third of your income for people who are... Uh, you know, seriously wealthy earning, uh, let's say, a million dollars or something. Uh, and of course, you know, one could say, well, somebody earning a million dollars could give away two-thirds of their income and still have quite a lot of money to live mm-hmm. on, right? Why, why just one-third? So, what I'm, what I'm trying to do here is to find amounts that I don't think anybody could say is a really serious sacrifice to their quality of life. Mm-hmm. And yet, when you add up, you know, what we would raise if people gave this, Uh, it's vastly larger than the amounts of money that are given to help people in extreme poverty at present. And I think it's enough to say if it was used wisely, uh, we would have a good chance of, uh, I wouldn't say eliminating, but reducing extreme poverty to small pockets rather than to the uh, 750 million or so people who the World Bank says are in extreme poverty today. Mm.
2: And one of the interesting things that your organisation does, it actually looks at looks for those charities and organisations that are using uh, everyone's dollars in the most effective way because I think often uh, people I've spoken to in Australia, they maybe don't donate. Sometimes that's a reason that puts them off because they know that only 50 cents in the dollar is actually going to help someone and the other 50 cents is going to all of the administration and back office and advertising. Um, how How do we ensure that the money we donate makes the most impact in the world?
1: Well I think the answer to that is by donating to societies where the impact has been verified mm-hmm. uh, as being very good value for for the dollars you're giving. And th- there's two things to think about there. You just mentioned the percentage that actually goes to the project rather than to administration or further fundraising. And of course in some cases if you know if 50% is is going for administration you know that's probably not going to be very good value. But on the other hand as anybody who's run a business knows you need to have some administration to make the business run efficiently itself. And if if all that people think about is how low is the proportion that goes on administration and fundraising, then they're going to put pressure on organisations to cut their staff mm. to the point where even if they can say 90% of what we raise goes to the low-income country, they can't say that it's actually doing what we want it to because they don't have the staff to, to supervise and check up that it is doing what what we want it to. So uh, we need to balance that. We need to balance the amount that is going to administration to make sure that organisations can still be efficient in what they're doing. And we need to know that the impact of their projects is really good. And and some projects you could spend as much as you like on it, but they wouldn't really achieve very much. It's been demonstrated that uh, a variety of projects have failed. Um, Projects need to be tested in the field. And ideally, they need to be tested against uh, kind of the, the equivalent of a placebo in, in drug testing. So, mm-hmm. in other words, say, for the distribution, distribution of bed nets against malaria that I mentioned, you need to have some baselines with how many children died in villages when there was no bed nets distributed, and how many children died in villages where bed nets were distributed. And then you can get a really good picture that yes, this is an impactful program that saves lives, or you know how many people had their sight restored through cataract surgery through this program, rather than other places where there was no non-government organization that was providing uh, cataract surgery. So, those are, those are the things that we're looking for and The Life You Can Save is, is looking for that kind of evidence and it's drawing on some other organizations because we can't do all that research ourselves. It's drawing on, uh, I mentioned already, GiveWell, another organization that does this and Impact Matters is another organization. So, we're, we're pulling together research that is done by different organizations and making it easily accessible to you uh, on our website, thelifeyoucansave.org.
0: Peter, one of the things that I struggle with is I want to give and I want to do it as effectively as I can. And we'll get to this in just a minute. But one of the things that I think about in the back of my mind, just for full disclosure, I'm um, I, I'm an investor by trade. I'm an analyst and I invest money for a living. Um, and one of the things that I struggle with is making the decision of – you know okay I've got $1 now I could donate that right now or if I saved and invested well maybe in 3 to 5 years I can give a lot more and more often um so I guess the question is for people that are listening to this as much as myself is should we wait until we've sorted out our finances you know got on top of debts and all that sort of stuff or should we just start now and I, and give a little bit I feel like I might know your answer but
1: Yes, we'll um, so I, I do think that starting now and giving something is a, is a good thing to do because it's it's a learning process um, mm-hmm. and it's also, if you like, a, a habit-forming process and some mm-hmm. some habits are good to form early. Uh, so I, I think it, it puts you in touch with organisations and you learn about them and uh, you may not be giving very much, but it'll help to form your choices later on when you have more to give. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the question, well, is it better to give, to to reinvest and give later, that really depends on your rate of return as compared to the rate of return of what you might call an investment in reducing poverty. Um, Mm -hmm. Because of course, there is a a rate of return of that. If, If you give money to a family now that helps to lift them out of poverty, then they may be better able to educate their children and their children may then have better jobs and better positions and may help the economy of the country where they're living in so uh, to that extent it's it's better to give now rather than later on the mm. other hand your return on your investment means it's better to give later so, you know, I'm actually very glad that Warren Buffett didn't give away most of the first million dollars he earned because... That was
0: going to be my follow-up. That. <laughs> right, okay,
1: I've anticipated, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, he, he invested that and reinvested it, and now he's given away, I think, something like $30 billion, um, and he's given it effectively through the Gates Foundation as well. So, uh, if you fancy that you're as good as Warren Buffett, you can, your rate of return is probably <laughs> better than the rate of return on uh, investing in poverty reduction. But um, you know, most of us ordinary mugs probably aren't quite up to that level. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wouldn't hold myself in such esteem.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's quite interesting—the the idea of building that habit early. Because if we, if we just think that we're going to start donating when we've uh, we've sorted out our life, we've raised our kids, everything like that, we might be fifty or sixty, and. I mean, the probability that you are going to start doing it then, when you haven't done it for the decades prior, is probably quite low.
1: It probably is quite low. Plus, don't forget that you, hopefully, you want to be an example for your kids. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important Mm -hmm. that kids know, you know, when they're young, that their parents are giving some money to people who are much less well off than they are. And I think that very often forms habits. You know, if you talk to people who do give and say why, well, many of them did grow up in a in a home that gave and it just Mm. comes much more naturally to them than than those who don't
2: yeah i think Mm. my first experience with sort of donating and giving to others was through the uh, a sponsor child my my parents had as we grew up and sort of you grew up and you saw that child grow up alongside of you um and and that that was probably my first exposure to donating and helping others
1: yeah i think that's that's quite often the case those Mm. those organizations uh uh, ha- have been uh, very popular with with families for that kind of reason
2: yeah so one of the other questions i I wanted to ask is because this is probably this is something that I've thought about in Australia um, do you think there are too many charities globally and and does this lead to an inefficient use of funds because I know there there's like hundreds of thousands of registered charities in Australia and uh, every everyone every sort of second person seems to be setting something up for their own cause, uh, do you think that's an inefficient use of funds or should we sort of focus on consolidating into a few major charities?
1: Well, it, it is an inefficient use of funds um, in the sense that they all need their separate administrative structure. And mm-hmm. also, um, it's sometimes a problem for the governments of, of low-income countries because they may be... Uh, have facing a, a lot of applications to do projects in those countries, and they're they're spending time doing that when really a smaller number of larger projects would do just as well. On the other hand, um, the fact that people can start their own organisation has led I think to some very successful Uh, lean and efficient organizations and I've already mentioned the Against Malaria Foundation which is is just one of those organizations it was started by somebody who saw a need for something that wasn't being done at the time elsewhere Mm. and uh, ran it out of his home office and uh, just had a couple Mm. of other people working and then made contacts with people in the countries where malaria is prevalent and is killing people Uh, and so, I built that up. So, you know, somebody could have said, well, you know, why did he do that? Oxfam was already in existence. Why didn't he just go and work for Oxfam? Mm-hmm. But um, as you know, anybody in the business field would know, sometimes there's a need for a new startup that does something that the uh, older firms haven't seen and they can be uh, faster and respond more quickly and have new ideas. So, uh, I'm not in favor of in any way sort of forcibly restricting the entry of, of new organizations. But I, I do wish people would really look around and make sure that they have got something special to offer uh, in starting a new organization that isn't being done and that they can do it better than the existing organizations. Because otherwise, it does become, in a sense, a sort of a, I don't know, personal an extension of your of your own ego to say yes i've 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 got my own charity mm-hmm. and I, you know i'm saying this i know i i've founded the life you can save i'm i'm not actually hands on i'm i'm chair of the board but there's a couple of other people who are who do the running of it and it's a very small organisation as well it has um, i don't know the equivalent of 3 or 4 full time employees mm-hmm. um but i do think it it is doing something that wasn't being done elsewhere and that's why i think it's it's worth doing
0: yeah. um Peter, having engaged with some of your material um, on and off for oh, at least the past 12 months, um, one of the, the, I guess, the phrases that perhaps many of our listeners don't understand is this idea of effective altruism. I think you described it in your TED Talk as effectively once you understand the value of a life and all, that, and all those being equal, the maths and the economics are really the simple part of effectively where you should um, allocate your money if you are giving. Can you explain the the concept of effective altruism, maybe even with an example if you have one handy?
1: Well, certainly. Um, so I think most people understand the idea of altruism, that is that we shouldn't be thinking just about ourselves, but we should also be thinking about others. That is, you know, we don't expect people to be saints and only think about others. But... Mm. One of your life goals should be, I think, trying to leave the world a better place, trying to do the most good that you can or something of that sort for at least at least part of your mm-hmm. objectives. And then the effective part of that is saying, whatever resources you are going to put in that altruistic direction, whether that's uh, time or skills or money, try to get the best value out of that that you can. Um, and, you know, that might sound... Very obvious, but uh, it's, it's surprising though how few people do that. You know, when you think about making large size mm. consumer purchases, then almost everybody does it. Almost everybody who wants to buy a new phone or a new laptop or a new car will do some research into saying, well, where can I get a good deal? Which, what, what will give me what I need at, at the lowest cost? But when it comes to giving to charities, relatively few people do that. They're, they're much more pulled by their emotions. They see a, uh, a brochure with a picture of a smiling child, or maybe nowadays they see something online, and they think, oh, that looks good. I'll donate to that. Uh, mm. But I think it's just as important or even more important to do research into making sure that what you're doing in that area of altruism is effective. Um, and you mentioned the, the mathematics. Uh, well, you don't have to do the mathematics, course if you really are a research nerd and want to check it all out for yourself, you can certainly do it. But there are, through these organizations I mentioned, there are teams of researchers who are doing this full-time, who are completely independent of the organizations that they're recommending, who don't get any kind of commission or cut from those organizations. Um, And so that's what makes it a lot easier for the ordinary person to be an effective altruist than it, it would have been, say, 20 years ago when, when that kind of research just wasn't available.
0: Mm. And people listening to this could take your uh, the table in your book and you know, identify where they sit in terms of their salary and the number that you gave us before in terms of uh, you know how much it costs to save a life. And I think the only thing missing between that is that ability to effectively use that money. You know, as investors, we always think about the most effective use of our capital, but also our time and everything else. It's a conscious decision. Um, So this is just that kind of that bridge there that people should be making and thanks to organizations like yours, and we'll provide links in the show notes, they can.
1: Yeah, and I remember now that you asked me to to give you an example. Um, So, in fact, one of the earliest people uh, in the effective altruism movement to actually get it started before there was even that term for it um, is uh, another Australian um, uh, a man called Toby Ord who um, is from Melbourne but went to Oxford uh, did a graduate degree there and is now a, uh, an associate professor I don't remember his exact title um, in and at Oxford and and he wanted to make that kind of calculation for himself how much how much good could I actually do and so he assumed that he was going to have an academic career, which means you, you have a fairly predictable salary as you rise mm-hmm. through the academic ranks. Um, so he assumed, he looked at how much he was likely to earn by the time he retired. This was while he was still a PhD student uh, and took that sum of money and then looked around to say, how can I use that most effectively? And what he came up with was uh, an organization that was preventing uh, blindness caused by trachoma. Trachoma is the cause of the, the largest cause of preventable blindness in the world it's it's mostly something that uh, occurs in in hot dry dusty countries where hygiene is poor uh it does exist in australia in the north but um you know much less and of course people can get treatment for it um but in uh, a lot of north african countries and some other countries it, it's prevalent and it, it slowly causes blindness uh, over over many years. So Toby looked at the cost, looked at some articles as to what it costs to prevent that. And he worked out that if he lived, if he continued to live modestly while earning an academic salary and going up through the ranks, that he would be able to prevent 80,000 people uh, going blind. Now, mm-hmm. you know, think of that. You imagine... <laughs> Uh, wow. The MCG uh, almost packed with people. It doesn't happen nowadays, I know, but uh, hopefully <laughs> it will happen again. And you could look around that MCG filled with, with crowds for a, a grand final or something, and you could say, wow, that's how many people I prevented going blind. And, mm. and this is not because I'm like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, because I've been a vastly successful, wealthy person. This is because I simply lived modestly while earning a decent academic salaries throughout my life.
0: Mm. Incredible, and I think that's kind of the, the visceral nature that and the takeaway that people need to to remember every time they see that little bit of money come out of their account. Kate, I know you have a few more questions that you want to get off.
2: Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things I wanted to talk about, Peter, is um, the concept of how we can help people the most in our careers, and how can we use our careers in a more effective way to solve these problems. And not all of us are going to be working in nonprofits and helping to to end world poverty and some of these things. And I think a lot of our listeners do work in that banking and finance industry. So, do you have some ideas on how we can use our careers more effectively to help um, with these global issues?
1: Yes, I can. And um, I think it's, it's, to some extent, I think reassuring for people who are in investment and finance who sometimes get a bit of flack from people who say, oh, you know, you're, you're the bad guys, you're, you're the guys who are running things, for you're doing it for your own to get rich yourself and you're Mm -hmm. causing problems elsewhere in the world. Uh, So, it's not an ethical career choice. Um, But one of the things that effective altruists have suggested in talking about career choice is that um, earning to give is a reasonable career choice if you can stick with it. Mm -hmm. So, I just mentioned that on an academic salary, Toby Ord calculated he could prevent 80,000 people from going blind. Obviously, if he had been a successful investor and successful in the financial sector, he could have earned a lot more money and could have prevented blindness in a lot more people or could have helped other people in other ways. Mm. So, um, uh, effective altruists suggest that if you have a talent for making money and you also have the character to stick to the resolution to give away a significant share of your income, uh, and not kind of to get seduced by the expensive toys that people in the finance industry often end up buying. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be a, a very ethical career choice. And I had a student at Princeton who um, was influenced by this way of thinking. And although he could have had a career as an academic, he was very good at philosophy too. He went to Wall Street and ended up as a, writing algorithms for a commodity trading company. Um, and now I guess it's something like this is eight or nine years ago he's been giving away half of his income ever since so he's done an immense amount of good with with that kind of money because you know he was earning a six-figure salary I think from the, the year he started uh, so you know that's that's one possible career choice obviously it's it's not the only one um, you can do good by working for a nonprofit organization and making it more effective you can do good by going into research and finding uh, Ways to have clean energy, or let's say at the moment, helping to develop a vaccine against COVID, uh, the, the virus that causes COVID nineteen. Um, so there's there's lots of other options. But if you're interested in that, there's a website for that too, uh, and it's called Eighty Thousand Hours, uh, which somebody calculated as the number of hours most people spend in their careers. So the I thought there is you know, appealing mostly to younger people who haven't settled into their career. Um, Spend some time thinking about what is a good career for you, but also an ethical career a good career for the world, which may make your life more fulfilling and satisfying anyway. Uh, And and that website offers a lot of options and discussions about uh, effective careers.
0: Peter, there's one more question that um, we didn't have on our list to to get to, but it's just a quick one. Um, You know... uh, I know you've done a lot of work in terms of animal uh, animals and ethics and then, and now with giving. Uh, one of the things that I often struggle with um, is, I guess, not doing enough. So I feel like, um, you know, I'm a vegetarian now I, because of the, I guess, the, the, the climate change perspective, but also from an animal rights perspective. Um, but then also, you know, with my business and setting it up the way I have, I often feel so compelled to give back that it's almost this pressure that I can't take off. Do you often find or do people come to you and say, you know, I'm so stressed out about how much I should be giving? Should I be doing more? I need to do more. How do we know where that line is? I I find that such a difficult question to answer.
1: Uh, It's a difficult question to answer in the abstract, certainly. But, uh, you know, I, I tell people, not to stress about finding exactly the right line, but rather to, to start somewhere. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, for people who are pretty comfortably off already, as perhaps, you know, successful investors anyway are, I say, look, start, start by giving away 10% of your income. It's a nice round figure. It's the traditional tithe. Mm-hmm. And it is quite substantial. Um, mm. So, you know, start with that. Get comfortable with that. Um, if you're really doing well, you may get comfortable enough with that you, you think, that's not enough. I could do more and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm finding it worthwhile and it makes what I'm doing with my time and the money more worthwhile. So I'll go up to 20%. Uh, but I, I don't stress about saying, am I at exactly the right level? I, I rather say, am I doing something significant? Am I comfortable with this? Could I do a little bit more next year? Um, and you know, gradually you'll find, I think, the point at which you feel you're doing something Really worthwhile, and uh, perhaps there'll be a point at which to do more. You think would be too much of a sacrifice for yourself and your family and those who depend on you, and it would be unreasonable to expect your partner to go along with that. You know, again, this is obviously something you would discuss mm-hmm. with your partner if you have one. So uh, I, th- I think make sure you're doing something substantial. Um, you're sort of, if you like, well ahead of the curve as to where uh, people mm-hmm. are on this, because that's not really very you know, at, at the right point at all, I think, uh, mm. and and then take it from there.
0: Mm. Well, that's that's great advice. It helps me put my mind at ease a bit, Peter. I must admit. Um, and I imagine this this conversation that we're having now with Kate and everyone that listens is um, is going to be motivational for them. But in any case, what we'll do is we'll share all of the links, including to uh, getting access to the free book, um, your free book, and and all of your works. But Peter, on behalf of, of Kate and I, thanks for taking the time out this evening to, to join us.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for the opportunity.